Now please hear your Bibles again. We'll turn once more to Isaiah chapter 53. Again, this of course being the last uh, Lord's Day of the first, last first Lord's Day of this year. Uh, again, we're coming to Isaiah. I thought we'd further on in the chapter, but we're in verse number 7 uh, today. But I trust the study over the last year has been beneficial. Um, that we're seeing more and understanding more of Christ and his sufferings. So Isaiah 53, verse number 1. Let's read down again to the end of verse number 7. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Amen. There is that verse 7 that will again be the tension of our hearts today. As we come in preparation to the table, and may God be pleased uh, to lead our minds to truth again today. The sufferings of the cross are really truly indescribable. We can look back in history, and there are various accounts given regarding the Roman practice of crucifixion. We can explain the events, but we cannot fully state the experience. One word that is often used to describe the suffering of the cross is the word excruciating. And that perhaps begins to bring our minds in a proper direction to the indescribable agonies of the one suffering upon the Roman cross. And the event lasted for several hours, whereby someone was exposed to the elements, usually in nakedness, dehydrated, suffocating, and the agony of their joints dislocating to the point where they expired and gave up their last. As a believer, we should be moved by the sorrows and the pains of others. And in that sense, we should be moved in our souls regarding the agonies of Christ's sufferings. But we must be careful. It's not by accident that the unbelievers today presume that if people see the agonies of the cross, they would then come to trust in Christ Jesus. So the modern films and television programs that try to uh, convey the gospel narratives and they, uh, they seek to display the crucifixion in some way, their assumption is that people will be moved to follow the Lord if they see the agonies of the cross. But do not confuse sympathy with love and faith. We can sympathize with someone suffering, but that is not the same as coming to trust and love Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. It's not surprising, again, that those who seek to promote the visual representations of the cross 
are generally uh, marked by unbelief in the true gospel, or by a false gospel, or perhaps by a liberal agenda in their own mindset. These things are serious, because the Bible does not downplay the Lord's physical sufferings, but we understand his sufferings are more than physical. His death is not like any other crucifixion. He suffers the wrath of God as our propitiatory sacrifice. He is forsaken of the Father, and the light of God's presence is removed in darkness. And so we often emphasize that the soul of Christ's suffering is the sufferings of his soul. And that is so very, very important. It is understanding the true nature of Christ's suffering that then leads us to true faith and love for the Savior. However, going back again to what I'm just saying, we must keep both aspects of the Lord's suffering in mind. We must not neglect the physical sufferings of Christ. And I think today's verse actually focuses our minds upon the physical. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and a sheep before her shearers. I think it's pointing to the human activity in the sufferings of the Savior. Now, we need not wonder who is in view in this text. We have the inspired record of Acts chapter 8, where the eunuch is reading from the book of Isaiah as he is in this chariot, and he's reading from this very, very text. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before our shearer is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. And Philip, as he explains that text, he asks the question, of whom am I reading? Philip says, opening his mouth and beginning at the same scripture, preached unto him Jesus. Again, please don't miss the emphasis of using the word Jesus there. He did not say preached unto him the Christ, although that is, of course, true. But he's making the statement that the Christ expected is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So again, even in Acts chapter 8, we see our attention is being drawn to the humanity and the sufferings of Christ as a man. So note, first of all, today then, please, in light of uh, the oppression and the affliction of the Savior, note the sufferings, please, the sufferings of the servant. And first of all, let's take some time to consider the executioners. The text says he was oppressed and afflicted. Now, we understand that when it comes to the cross, we can say that Christ is afflicted and bruised of God. Verse 4 Although this is the mind of the unbeliever expressed here, smitten of God and afflicted, they, they judge Christ in that way, but they judge that to be true. That was the case. He was indeed smitten of God. Of course, verse number 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And so we see certainly the Lord's sufferings come at the hand of his Father. We also understand that Satan bruises the heel of the seed of the woman. And so Satan has agency in the sufferings of Christ also. He does not crush the Savior's head, but he is responsible for bruising the Savior's heel. It is his hour. It's the hour of darkness. Satan is involved again in the sufferings of Christ Jesus, the evening entering the Judas in terms of the betrayal of our Lord. But I think here, particularly, we should see the acts of man in view. And I encourage you, please turn across to 1 Peter chapter 2, because this 
concept of the Lord opening not his mouth is taken by Peter as an example to the believers of how they should suffer righteously at the hands of ungodly men. And so the example of Christ here is how does he suffer when ungodly people treat him despitefully? And so 1 Peter chapter 2, um, the verse number 21, again regarding suffering in verse 20, For even here unto I unto suffering were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Now, now, again, we understand Peter is not suggesting for one second that the Lord's death was only the death of a human example. He understands the nature of substitutionary atonement, but he's saying here that in the Lord's death, he does serve as an example to the righteous in terms of their suffering. And so I think the executioners involved here in the sufferings of Isaiah 53 are indeed the acts of men. He suffers at the hands of man. As Peter preached in Pentecost, by wicked hands have crucified and slain, while still doing the counsel and the purpose of God. These acts were done to the Savior. He was oppressed, oppressed by those made by his hand, oppressed by those preserved in his kindness. Oppressed by those, some of whom, like the centurion, were the objects of Christ's electing love. It's remarkable that Christ suffers from those who have been treated by him so kindly. And I think it reminds us of our own human nature. How we, without grace, would treat the Savior. We think we would do better than they would. Absolutely not. You want to know how you would treat Christ? Look at how the world around you views Christ today. There are those who are apathetic, but there are many who are antagonistic to the very word Jesus. They hate that word mentioned in their ears. It implies sin and the necessity of a Savior, and they have no time for the Lord's anointed. And we are just the same in our hearts without the saving grace of God. It's our heart. That's the executioners of this suffering. The end of his suffering is death. A lamb to the slaughter. Again, we're seeing death. And of course, those who put the Lord to death, their aim is to put an end to their troubles as they see it. The troubles of Jesus' ministry in that locality. And they think if they put him to death, that will end their troubles. Little did they know they were doing the will of God. Because death is, of course, Christ being made a curse for us. As they put him to the slaughter through their own evil means and through their own evil motives, they are doing the will of God, and Christ has made a curse for us. He is the Lamb slain. The lamb slaughtered for our sins. Again, it's remarkable. You go across to John chapter 11, and there is that 
uh, just interesting account regarding the uh, Caiaphas, the priest, in just regards to these evil men and their executioners and um, what they're doing in the will of God. John 11, verse number 44. Um, one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. In his mind, get Jesus out of the way. One man dying is good for the whole nation. The Romans will not detest us. We'll have this trouble. If Jesus dies, it's better for us all. A terrible example of utilitarian ethics. Oh, but what's happening here? Well, look what it says. And this spake he not of himself. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. People like you and me, he didn't understand that, yes, what he's saying was true. His mind was this direction, but God's mind was that, and God's mind holds sway. God's thoughts are done. Man's thoughts are thwarted. And so we see the end of his sufferings, the end of death, and the very purpose and plan and counsel of God. Which leads thirdly to the experience of his sufferings. Again, two words are used in our text regarding our Savior's sufferings. Oppressed and afflicted. The word oppressed is, is interesting in its, in its general usage in the Scriptures. It speaks of exacting or requiring a tax or a labor from someone. And then it's, it's kind of derived from that basic meaning to be used of tyrants and taskmasters. It's used that way when it comes to the book of Exodus, when it comes to the people of God suffering from their Egyptian taskmasters. It's the same word, same root word used for oppression here as used for the taskmaster. So you get the idea of brutality. You get the idea of one under the power of another. It's used the language of the captors of Israel or Judah regarding the punishment of their sins in Isaiah 14. Again, they're oppressed. They're put under the yoke of another. They are treated cruelly and harshly. But I think significantly is the thought, as we'll see in a minute or two, the Lord is brought under the power of others. He's oppressed and cruelly oppressed. And then connected to the thought of being afflicted. That has a sense of being humbled in his sufferings. The Son of God, the Lord of all, sinless man, and yet he is humbled in his sufferings. We think of the humiliation of Jesus Christ in his sufferings. The experience. And yet, having looked at the sufferings of the servant, we should note secondly and finally today the submission of the servant. John Gill, the commentator, observes that these figurative expressions are expressive not only of the harmlessness and innocence of Christ, he is that sheep and he is that lamb, the innocence there, but particularly of his meekness and patience in suffering and of his readiness and willingness to be sacrificed in the room and stead of his people. He says this, He went to the cross without any reluctance. He went as willingly to be sacrificed as a lamb goes to the slaughterhouse, and was as silent under his sufferings as a sheep while under the hands of its shearers. 
He was willing, says Gil, to be stripped of all he had as a shorn sheep and to be slaughtered and sacrificed as a lamb for the sins of his people. Again, the words of 1 Peter chapter 2, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. It does not mean that he was ignorant of the events before him. That's not the concept here. Don't misunderstand this and say, well, the sheep is ignorant of its, of its outcome of the events, and that explains the silence. That's not the point here. The, the picture, the, the metaphor that's used here is this idea of uh, sheep and the submission to the outcome. And so it is the Lord. He is not ignorant of these events, but he voluntarily subjects himself to them. He is innocent, innocent of the charges, but he does not resist the circumstances before him. In verses 4 through 6, we saw that in a sense, Jesus did not deserve to die. He did not die for his own sins, but he died for our sins. And now you get to verse number 7, and you see that not only did he not deserve to die, but he was willing to die for those given to him by the Father. We see here the unity of the triune God in redeeming sinners. Verse 4 and verse 10 highlight the agency of the Father in the bruising of the Son. Indeed, verse number 6 tells us, The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Father is in view here as putting our sins upon the Son, and the Son does not resist such a covenantal agreement. The Son and the Father are in perfect unity. The Son does not need to be convinced of the plan and purpose of God in redemption. He gladly consents from all eternity to be the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The covenant agreement of Father and Son, the unity of the triune God and the charity of the Son. Surely here we see the charity of a Son. Remember that word oppressed? One brought under the cruel power of another? Surely those who are brought under the power of another do so against their will? The very concept of oppression is something that we are unwilling to undergo. We are taken captive against our wills. And yet Christ allows himself to be brought under such oppression. It is not against his will. It's in his will. And he perfectly delights to do the Father's will as he puts himself under oppression and affliction. He did not resist Judas. He warned Judas, but he did so in such a way that all the disciples say, Is it I? Is it I? He does not resist arrest. He displays his glory. I am, and they fall backwards at the display of the Lord's glory. But he rebukes the use of the sword. And he goes easily into the hands of his captors. He does not resist the false trials. Before the high priest, Jesus held his peace. Before Pilate, he answered him never a word. Before Herod, he answered him nothing. 
the three phases of his false trial, in all three phases, he's explicitly said to open not his mouth. He is the lamb that was taken to the slaughter. Who had the right to self-defense like our Savior? We know our own instincts, don't we? If we're falsely accused or mistreated, our instincts within ourselves is to defend ourselves and make sure that everybody knows that we're in the right and they're in the wrong. We'll go on Facebook. We'll go wherever we want to go. We'll make sure the whole world knows we've been mistreated and falsely treated. And yet the Lord has perfect self-control over his mouth, willing to be mistreated and falsely treated because he loved our souls to the end. He does not resist the Father. Not my will, but thine be done. And when tempted by Peter, he says, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou knowest not the things that be of God. He is the perfect Savior. He has a baptism to be baptized with. And he says, he is straightened till it be accomplished. Behold, the love of Christ for sinful men. We're coming to the table again today. And are you here wondering or questioning Christ's love for you? In providence, perhaps your life is a real challenge at the present time. And you're like the disciples in the boat. Carest thou not that we perish? And you wonder within your own mind, the friend of sinners, the friend that is closer than a brother, but does he really love me? Doubts arise. Perhaps in conviction of our sins, even as believers, we, we feel this sin within our own souls. We see the depth of our own iniquity and doubts arise. Be gone, unbelief. The Bible says he loves me and gave himself for me. And the evidence is here. He opens not his mouth. I lay down my life for the sheep. Meditate again today, please, dear child of God, on the wonderful, glorious, selfless love of Christ Jesus. This is your Savior today. And if you have not called upon him, why not? There is no friend like the lovely Jesus. Turn to him today. And dear child of God, rest upon him every day of your life. And delight in the love of Christ for your soul.